As we just sang, all creation speaks of the glory and the grandeur of God Almighty, right? The birds, their carols raise, the morning light, the lily white, all of it declares its maker's praise. This morning, we're going to hear God's word from the very beginning, the book of Genesis about the creation of all things. First thing I'd like to point out, because some people didn't see it, uh, first of all, can we thank uh, John and Sherry and the creative team for doing all of this back here? These are real tree roots. No, they're not, but they look close. And if you look closely, do you see the word Genesis written through them? Oh, see, now it clicked for everybody. Good. G is the first. Okay, you see it here. G-E-N-E-S-I-S. Uh, they, we had this idea of what to do for this, and I basically told them the idea, and they were like, oh, okay, yeah, okay. And then they just went and did their thing. So uh, we're thankful that they decorated the stage for us and did such a fine job on that. But as I said, we're going to hear about the beginning of all things today. And I know, I know something. I know when we open up to Genesis 1, there are going to be questions on your mind, right? For probably 90, 95% of the people in this room, you're thinking, here we go. Jared is going to Ken Ham them up in here, all right? We're going to talk about early creation. We're going to talk about how all the science backs up everything in the Bible give it to them, all right? Get those evolutionary scientists and just let them have it. I know some of you are thinking that, and I know there's a good 5 to 10% of you that are like, I really want to know how this actually does line up, because I, I hear these things, and some of these, uh, these findings we have seem pretty conclusive, and how old then is the world? Can we, does a day mean a day? I mean, is there, is there interpretive room around something like that? And I'm here to say today, I will address that, but I'm going to do it in only a few short minutes at the end of the sermon. And there's a reason why. There's a very important reason why, and it's this. Today, I want you to think more about the God of creation than about how long it took. Does that make sense? We often get our minds fixated and focused on one certain aspect of this. Day, one day, two day, three... We think about that and we want to know, what does that mean? What does that mean? But today, I want us to think more about the God of all this creation than obsessing over really a smaller point in the passage. And so that's what I'm going to flesh out today. We want to always deal rightly with the text. As someone who brings forth God's word, all of us on the pastoral staff want to do that. We want to deal well and deal rightly with it. But Genesis 1 is saying much much, much more about the God of creation than how long it took. So today we're going to answer the question, how does God reveal himself to us? We have the Bible. We are Christians a couple thousand years after the life and death of Christ. So we know the story. But to the early readers, the people of Israel who would first have this account, we have to really ask that question. How did God want himself to be known in the minds of the original hearers. That's really the point of studying the Bible. And then how then does that affect us? So that's our simple question. What does this passage tell us about God? It says many, many things. If you would, please stand with me as I read from the beginning of the beginning. Genesis chapter 1. Pastor Chris talked on verse 1 two weeks ago when we started the series. 
We're going to read from chapter 1 all the way to the beginning of chapter 2. This is the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form. It was void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that this light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening, there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, Plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And guess what? It was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. Oh, and the stars. God made those too. Verse 17, and God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, I'm not done yet. Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply over the face of the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. Notice he didn't say mosquitoes. Moving on. And it was so, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds. You see a pattern here? And everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth 
and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man, you and I, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. And then comes the seventh. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all their host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And so God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. The first thing that I would like to communicate that I believe Genesis 1 is communicating to us about our God is something that you might not pick up on first. You probably would assume I would say that he is a creator first. But we're going to rewind a bit further. The first thing is this. God is triune. Say that with me. God is triune. He is a trinity. He is the God who shares himself with us. He shares all of himself with a creation. He is. He exists and has existed for all time in perfect, eternal, joyous, harmonious relationship within himself. A triune existence. Now, if you're not too familiar with theological terms, maybe you're newer to the church, this is probably going to confuse you. And if you aren't newer to the church, this probably still will confuse you because we're talking about the Almighty, amen? All right, I'm going to dive into Trinity 101 here at the beginning because I think this is vital for us to see from the very beginning, and it starts to eliminate a bunch of lies that we could be tempted to believe. I'll get there in a moment. First of all, the simplest way of understanding the Trinity is this, that there are three persons in one God. All right, we need to try that again. There are three persons in one God. There's this cute little song I teach our kids. There are three persons in one God. I do that. And they're like, Dad, how did you do that? Like, they're, they're overwhelmed by it. It's, that alone is confusing to them, let alone the reality of a Godhead who is three persons in one God. But my kids understand this. I ask them, how many gods are there? One God. Yes. Not a heretic. Second question, how many persons are there? There are three. Who are they? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is the Godhead, the Trinity, the triune God. We sing of this all the time, don't we? We sing lyrics like, we believe the Lord our God is one, Father, Spirit, Son, this is our God. We sang earlier, all creatures of our God and King. It mentioned the Trinity in that song. We sing the doxology, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. This is the God we serve. Infinitely more 
interesting in his existence than we can even fathom. But still we try. The theologians have often used this uh, illustration or something like it to help us understand some of the distinction here. So some of these words are in Latin. So you have the pater, the father up at the top, non est. So he is not the spiritus sanctus. He is not the Holy Spirit. They are different persons. We got that? The Holy Spirit, going to the left, is not the Phileas. He is not the Son. They are different persons. And also, the Son is not the Father. Sometimes, even in our prayers, we get confused. Father, thank you for giving yourself and saving us. That's Jesus. So you can see how the confusion has existed over time. But all of them, est, deus, all of them are God. There are three persons in one God. Anybody scratching their head yet? Yeah, I think all of us, because this is impossible for us to fully comprehend. But this image is actually helpful in our understanding of this. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not the Son. The Son is not the Father. You see the threeness there? Yet, they share in the essence the very nature of God. They are not three gods. That's tritheism. There is one God, monotheism. They are completely unified in eternal existence and harmony. So we're going to start with the Father, briefly. He is not first the creator, though we see here in Genesis 1 that he is the creator, correct? What is he first? Well, simply understood, the Father is first the Father. That might sound too simplistic, but here's how this fleshes out. To be a father, you must have a son. If the son was Jesus, if he was at any point created, so at some point he didn't have an existence and then at some point he did, if that were true, then God would not eternally be a father. Does that make sense? He has to forever have a son for him to be a father. Because then prior to the son's arrival, God would not be father and therefore would, not, would cease to be the God of the Bible. The theological language for this, even though it's complex, is that the Father eternally begets the Son. An eternal begetting of the Son. What does that mean? The illustration I think of is a, a fountain that's bubbling and overflowing. You guys have all seen those before, maybe at a park or at Disney, someplace like that. Continually overflowing with water. The Father, in and of, of himself, is overflowing and full of life and delight, and joy. And from that overflow, he's eternally begetting the Son. There is never a point where that fountain was shut off. He's forever begetting the Son. Father and Son. Forever. This is important. And I will get to why. This is where our vocabulary matters. Because if we say that the Father created the Son, then the Son has a beginning. And if that's true, then Jesus is not eternal. And if he is not eternal, you and I have no hope that he is eternally our great high priest that actually can wash away our sins forever. This has implications throughout all of our faith. And this is why theologians for hundreds of years tried to pin down language to help understand this. I'm not going to read it for sake of time, but this is a portion of the Athanasian Creed, front and back. All of those words specify who the Son is, who the Father is, and who the Spirit is without confusing the three. So look that up later. It's the Athanasian Creed. It is a very well and historic document that helps our finite brains understand these realities. All right, you guys still with me? 
this is going to be fun. I, I had some good time preparing for this this week, Chris. This is good stuff. All right, the Nicene Creed, which is another early church creed. I actually grew up in my church reciting that every week, so it has a special place in my heart. It says this, in addition to the Father and Son being God and being eternal, it says, we believe in the Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. The Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And with the Father and Son, He, the Spirit, is worshipped and glorified. We see the person of the Holy Spirit right here in Genesis chapter 1. Did you catch it earlier? Look at verse 2. The earth was without form and it was void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of God, is hovering over the abyss, hovering over the face of the waters in creation. And guess what he's ready to do? The creed said what? He's the Lord. He's the giver of life. Guess what he is about to do? He is about to unleash life to all things. And this makes sense, right? In the New Testament, when we talk about our lives when we were once dead in Christ, and then we become alive in him, guess who makes that aliveness happen? It's the Holy Spirit. We talk about this. This is the doctrine of regeneration. When people with old loves and broken wills all of a sudden get chiropractic, get fixed, and all of a sudden we see Jesus for as beautiful as he really is. That's the doctrine of regeneration. That's the Holy Spirit giving new life, just as in Genesis 2, he's giving life. That's what the Spirit does. The Spirit is often explained in the Trinity and in Trinitarian thought as being the relationship of love between the Father and the Son for all time. It's how the Father and Son express their love to one another. Very complex. Scratch your head if it's confusing. Along with me. Good. So we see the Spirit here in Genesis 1. We see the Father in the beginning. He created the heavens and the earth. Big question. Jared, you're saying the Trinity is here in Genesis 1. Where is the Son? Where is the eternal Son? Where is Jesus? Did you catch where he was? Look back at the chapter. What verse would you go to to say that the Son is present here? This will be like out loud talking time. Feel free. Do you see any? I see a bunch of them. In verse 3, verse 6, verse 9, verse 11, verse 14, verse 20, 24, 26, 28, and 29, you see the Son. You find it yet? What's that? It's three little words, and you've got to look closely to find it. Three little words. At the beginning of each one of those verses, it says this, And God said. We breeze over that because we're looking to find out about days, right? That's what we want to know. And God said. Jared, what do you mean? The Son is called the incarnate Word. He is the eternal Word of the Father. That's how those scriptures speak of the eternal Son. They talk about Jesus, who we know when he took on flesh. They talk about him all throughout the scriptures as being the Word of God. And so at the very beginning, you have, and God said, and God said, and God said. And guess what? When the incarnate Word speaks something into existence, it is, period. If you think I'm reading something into the text, this is why I can say that confidently. The beginning of John's gospel. Let's look at it together. What does it say? In the beginning was the word, the incarnate Son of God, 
forever being begotten by the Father. And the Word, He was with God in the beginning for all time, and the Word was God. That's why we say He's divine. And He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. This is the Jesus who died for you and I, the one who spoke you into existence. How incredible is that? We see the, cle- the three in oneness clearly also in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Flip ahead there. This is where we get the idea that God is not simply one person, but three. In Genesis 1, 26, God says this, and look at the emphasis. Then God said, let us make man in our image. See the plural words there? After our likeness. If God was just one person, he would say something to the effect of, I now make man in my image after my likeness, period. Or if there was a competition in this Godhead and they weren't perfectly united in all things, it would say something like, uh, you go ahead and make man in your image and you after your likeness. You see the difference of even the pronoun, what that difference would make? No, but God, being three, but also being completely unified, being one God, says, no, no, I'm going to make man in our image, in our likeness. That's an incredible reality. You notice here, male and female, two distinct persons that are the essence of humanity in the same way, just like the three persons of the Godhead share in the same essence of the divine. Do you see the triune God starting to reveal himself in Genesis 1? You starting to see it now? The implications of this are astounding, and this is why I brought all of this up. This is why this matters. First, go ahead and hit it. God didn't need an object to love. God loves us, absolutely. But God didn't create us because he needed something to now love. Why? Because he was forever loving the other persons of the Godhead. The Father forever loving the Son, the Son forever loving the, the, the Father, and that being experienced through the person of the Spirit for all time. So God wasn't like, wow, there's something lacking in me. I haven't been able to express love. Ah, I know. I'll create things so that I can love them. No, God didn't create because he needed something to love. In the same respect, God didn't need us. If this hurts your pride, then good. Okay, God did not need to create us. There was no incompleteness in him ever, nor will there ever be. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God didn't need to be completed. Like the the old movie line, you complete me. God's not needy, everybody. And that's why when we pray to this God and we ask him for things, it's not like, oh man, how in the world am I going to accomplish that? He's like, thank you for finally asking. And then he lavishes what we need upon us. The third thing it says is that God wasn't bored. It wasn't like God was eternally up there with nothing to do, twiddling his thumbs saying, what should my new project be today? This eternity thing's got me real bored. I'm going to go ahead and create a universe, and then I'm going to run it, and that'll give me something to do for the next few millennia. No, God didn't have any sensation of being bored in his entire life. And the fourth thing it says is this, 
God has no rivals. The reason why this is important is because other ancient creation stories and narratives, they paint their gods as petty, as vindictive, as incompetent, uh, power-hungry, incomplete, and that's why they make the world. So when you listen, like read ancient mythology, the reason why Marduk and all of these other fake creation stories, the reason why they created was because something threatened them. There was some rivalry happening. There was something that struck panic in them, and so they created to control, to show their power. Does our God have any hint of that in the Scriptures? Not one. He has no rivals. So now, the big question is this. Okay, why did God create then? Right? We want to know, why did God create all that is? What was the purpose of it? It's really quite simple when you begin with the Trinity, which is why I did. God creates out of the abounding overflow of himself. God was forever in this harmonious, peaceful, joyous, delightful relationship within himself. And out of that overflow, he created things, people, all that is to share in himself. That's really wordy, but that's the point. God wanted to create something so that this something could share in his delight and in his joy and in his peace forever and also glorify him in the entire process. That's why God created mountains, trees, plants, and that's why God created us in a unique way, which Pastor Chris is going to talk about next week, image of God. No, I'm not. I'm going to sleep next week is what I'm going to do. That's why God created. It's because he's so glorious and beautiful and he is that wonderful that he wants all things to share in him. To use the, the sports analogy, if you guys have ever watched football, there's, a, there's a, a segment of like sports bloopers where the guy will just go, come on, man. You guys know those? That, was, that wasn't Shannon Sharp. Who was that? Chris, Chris Carter. Come on, man. He would say that after somebody would do a boneheaded play. So to think that God was bored, come on, man. Our God to be bored? You've got to be kidding me. To think that he was needy, that he was empty and unfulfilled, and that's why he made us? Let's get off our high horse a little bit. He needs nothing. In other words, he's not like us, which is another huge point of God revealing himself. He's not like us. He doesn't have needs. When he's lonely and feeling sad, he doesn't flip on the TV or go shopping. He doesn't need anything. Perfectly happy and joyous for all time. The triune God, the one we serve and worship, desires to share himself, to make this creation, to enjoy him. And what could be better than for all things to enjoy this type of generous and benevolent God? Nothing. So now, this is where this applies. Do you see God this way? Do you see God as joyful and generous and happy? Or is he a grumpy old miser in the sky? Has your understanding of God been misled by these harmful ideas that make you think he's stingy and distant and cold? 
God is love, and in him there is no darkness at all. He is thoroughly good, just as Chris articulated two weeks ago in his sermon. And this thoroughly good God, full of joy and delight, wants you. doesn't need you. He wants you. He wants to be with you, and he wants to draw his children near to himself. This God invites us to an eternal feast in his joyous presence. As Isaiah 55, verse 1 says, God speaking through the prophet, he says, Come, thirsty ones, come to the fountain of living water. Come, those who don't have any money, come buy and eat. All your joy is found in the God of eternal joy. This is the God who desires to share his self, his joy with all creation. And so, and so, this God speaks. The second thing I'd like to share from this passage is that the voice of the Lord is sheer power. And he creates from nothing. The, the term for that is ex nihilo. God creates using no pre-existent materials. Raise your hand if you know how to make a paper airplane. Okay, I need you to come up, Nancy, and then Pastor Chris, I saw your hand too. I need you guys to come up for a moment. No, Chris, this will be perfect. This will be great. Come on up. This illustration is going to be even better because you're a part of it. Come on up. All right. I'm going to have each one of our paper airplane makers up here. I'm going to have them make you a paper airplane. Now, don't get too complex with this. Just make a nice, simple one, okay? Nancy, please make right up here. Use the pulpit. Pretend you're preaching, all right? Don't do that. Uh, go ahead and make your paper airplane. Now, Chris, I want you to make a paper airplane, but you don't get paper, okay? So you just work on that when she works on hers, okay? Can I help her? No. It can't be, I mean, it's just a piece of paper. It can't really be that hard to create. That's the same way I make them, by the way. Sorry. Oh, I, I thought you were going to hit me. <laughs> I won't mess with you, I promise. All right, let's see if it works. It's a little off, but... It, they, they can't see the details from there. Let's just, just launch it. Let's, let's see. As long as we get some flight, that'll be good. Ready? Yes. Ooh. All right. All right, Chris, go ahead and launch yours. All the way in the back. Don't pretend. It hit 10 right in the chest. All right. Thank our volunteers. We breathe so quickly over this reality, don't we? A painter can paint something with paint, right? And we look at it and we're like, wow, that's creative. That's incredible. Look at Van Gogh. Look at Michelangelo. Look at all these incredible things. Look at the Sistine Chapel. Wow. God didn't need paint. I know that sounds simplistic, but God needed nothing from which to use to be able to make things. He spoke and things that were eternally non-existent in the mind of God alone explode into life and being just by the power of him saying it. We can't even make a piece of paper with a paper airplane without something pre-existing, without a piece of paper. God made galaxies. 
He made stars. He made the human eye with all its intricacies. He made every living thing by not even hardly lifting a finger, by saying, let it be. Boom! And it explodes into existence. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the God we worship. Amen? His voice is sheer power. Theologians call this ex nihilo, God creating from nothing. But we know, but we know what that actually looks like, and it just blows our minds away that God could create something from nothing. Uh, Psalm 29, look at it later, it talks about the voice of the Lord. It's, a, it's an incredible passage that talks about how God speaks into creation. Job uh, chapter 34, verses 13 through 15 mention the fact that if, if God withdrew his spirit, look at uh, verse 4 here, he should set his heart to it and gather himself his spirit and his breath, then all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. If the incarnate word did not continually sustain all things that he created and pulled back his power, everything would turn to nothing. That's the power that Jesus is upholding the universe with for all time. Isn't that incredible? All creation, uh, actually go to Psalm 33, that's the next passage I put up here. It says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. And so let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why? For he spoke. And it, all things, came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. This is why we worship this God. It's interesting that all creation responds in instantaneous obedience to the voice of the Lord. Yet when we read the scriptures, we're like, oh, I don't know if that's for me. All creation responds in instantaneous obedience except for now the very creatures he created to have intimate fellowship with him forever. We're the ones that kind of turn our shoulder and we're the only ones of all creation that disobey his command. God speaks to a monkey and it behaves like a monkey. Right? He creates a monkey and it does monkey things. He creates humans and we do awful atrocities that we were never designed to do. How foolish is the sin of pride did God really say? Genesis 3, we'll get there. The third thing I'd like to communicate to us from this passage is that God loves his creation. Loves it. And when I say love, I mean not just like because he has to, like he likes it. He thoroughly enjoys this world that he has made. Through the days of creation, we see God ordering the chaos, what was once a formless dark and void, empty universe, it's now teeming with life. He carefully fashioned and shaped this world to reflect his beauty and his glory. And after each part of creation, light, the heavens, waters, dry land, plants, stars, living creatures, animals, and ultimately humans, he says it's good. It's good. He likes what he makes. He's thrilled with it. All this creation was good, and then he decides to create these little images in the world of himself, humans, and he wants to further fill the world with his glory, and he says, ah, that's very good. That's very good. This includes you and I. So many people today think that they're nothing but a mistake, a screw-up, they can't do anything right, they don't look like the people on TV, so therefore they're inherently flawed. 
God loves you the way he made you. And yet we try to fight that to our dying day. I'm getting a bunch of gray in my beard now. I didn't write this down. A bunch of it. And I thought about, you know, maybe two years ago, I was like, what if I just keep plucking those things? Then I realized that would start to turn into a full-time job. So just let it go. Be who God made you. It's okay. What if we believe the truth that God's creation was indeed very good and he looks down and smiles upon it? Like Psalm 139 says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. What if instead of believing the lies of an enemy who hates us, we instead chose to believe the declaration in Genesis that he loves all that he has made? That would start to change the way we see things. Now, as you might be thinking, unfortunately, since the fall, our lives are now subject to sin and decay and death. But that is a marring of the good creation God originally made. And that's a marring of the creation that Christ redeems. The Bible doesn't care much for our inflated self-esteem, as I mentioned earlier, but it also doesn't allow for us to speak ill of the image of God in us or in other people. Pastor Chris is going to speak of the image of God next week, so I won't share more on that. And in the remaining few minutes, as promised... I will dive into what you've all been waiting for. And maybe now you're a little less anticipating it, which was my hope. The days of creation, all right? How do we rightly interpret Genesis 1? Evolutionary hypotheses, hermeneutics, what does a day really mean? As I said, I think 90 to 95% of you are just like, get them. Get those evolutionary people, and the other people might actually want to know and what I'm here to say is this, and I'm going to do this quickly. So if, this, if I'm talking fast, it's because I want to finish it in the next five minutes, all right? Though I love science, took, uh, took chemistry, took physics, those were some of my favorite classes growing up in high school. Though I love studying this world that God has made, I do not profess to be a scientist, Okay? So if you're looking for a bunch of scientific proof and evidence right now that backs up creation, other people can do that. I'm not the guy for that. I do try to study the Bible as much as I can, though. And so I'm going to speak to you from a scriptural or a pastoral standpoint on this. And here goes. My conviction is this. I believe in a literal six-day creation. Our church believes this. It's in our doctrinal statement. Genesis 1 and 2 are written in a poetic form, and that's very clear if you look at the original language. But just because something is written in poetry in that form, it doesn't mean that it no longer conveys truth. Does that make sense? Something can be poetic and still be true. I could write a song for how much I love my wife, do it in poetry form, and it doesn't mean, well, it was poetry, so you can discard it. Okay? I believe Orthodox Christians as Orthodox Christians must believe that the scriptures are inerrant and do not convey lies, but still comes the question of how we interpret Genesis. Are these days of creation meant to be interpreted literally? Are they meant to be interpreted figuratively? The Bible's filled with figurative language, right? Metaphors about God in the Psalms being a rock, Jesus in the New Testament being a door, being a vine. Okay, we're familiar with what a metaphor is. It's a comparison to help us understand something. So, 
is that how we interpret the days of creation in Genesis? And here's my conviction. If this were the only place where days of creation were mentioned or referenced in the Bible, I would probably give much more credit to a figurative interpretation. I probably would. I'd be okay saying, yeah, maybe that wasn't a literal day. Maybe that was an, an era of time. And I could see. Could you guys see how that would be something that could be understandable? But here's my conviction. The rest of the, of the scriptures speak of and understand the days of creation as actual days. This includes the very reason that the Sabbath day was given in Exodus, in the law. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, they say this. This is in the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall do labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day, it's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Why? Verse 11 is key. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. The very reason that God tells his people to work for six days and then rest on the seventh is because that's what God did. And we're in his image and we are supposed to do things the way he does things because it works. If Genesis 1 is to be interpreted figuratively, then Israel could have easily gotten away, and they were experts at finding loopholes, right? He could have easily gotten away with breaking the Sabbath law just by fudging the numbers. Ah, it was about a day. You know, I mean... I know work for six, take a whole off. I took like a couple of hours off on the Sabbath. That should suffice, right? He didn't really mean day, did he? You see, see my line of logic there? All throughout the Psalms, including the prophets, and all throughout the New Testament, the biblical writers seem to understand this passage in one way. And my conviction is, is that's the way we ought to understand it as well. But wait, you might say, the biblical writers didn't know what we know about science. I agree. Could God have used the process of evolution to create? That way, he's still the creator, but it's compatible with the findings that scientists are now telling us? Is this possible? Again, here's my conviction, and I'm going to be quick on this, but I am a little impassioned about it, too. I'm going to say a definitive no on that one. And this is why. And I'm not speaking scientifically. I'm speaking theologically. Here are the holes in the boat of theistic evolution. Theistic evolution is the idea theistic, like God, theos, that God preordained a process of evolution by which all things came to be, right? It's kind of a blending of the two worlds. Some call it like uh, creationary compatibilism, I think. It's the idea of putting these two worlds together and making a picture that we're okay with. Here's why I think there, that doesn't work. Here's the holes, the gaping holes in my mind. And this is what I said will be fast. Ready? If millions of years happened with things evolving, survival of the fittest as Darwin taught us, then death did not originate in the fall of humanity in Genesis 3. And if that is the case, then it is not the final enemy to be destroyed, like Corinthians says, because God created it as a normative means for creation. I just did my grandma's funeral on Friday. If death is normal, we're wasting our time at church. Does that make sense? If there is, this is number two, if there's no direct creation of the first actual humans, Adam and Eve, the, humans of, uh, the first humans of the human race, and if they evolved from other life forms, from primitive life forms, to get to be what we have now is the upright man, if that happened, then the following would be true. And I don't think you'd be okay with these. Number one, Romans 5 is wrong. All have not fallen in Adam, 
And therefore, we have no origin for the sin that's in the world, and we probably can't be held responsible for it. Maybe, in fact, God created it. Maybe it's his fault. Maybe he's the author of good and also evil, if evil wasn't an outside problem that came to be. I have a problem with that. Number two, this is very important in our current day and age. The biblical picture of monogamous marriage as God's design loses all of its footing. Go ahead and marry whomever or whatever you please if Adam and Eve were not real humans. Who cares? It's just poetry. It's meant to be interpreted figuratively. They weren't really monogamous to one another. They probably had other partners. Why shouldn't we? You think our culture is in enough trouble with marriage as it is? This is why I don't think you can interpret things this way. This one's huge, okay? If all are not in Adam and Eve, our first two parents, then the human race is not unified or united. When we lose all sense that we belong to one another, are all descendants of Adam and Eve, all related to and responsible for one another, then racism, ethnic cleansing, dissension, and hatred will rule the hearts of mankind. If we're not all in Adam, if we all gradually evolved from various other life forms to get to where we are now, then that's the picture that we get painted. If there was no first Adam and Eve, the world wasn't cursed as a result of Adam's sin because that didn't really happen. So all of our toil and pain has no explanation and is probably going to continue forever. Have fun and go to work tomorrow, everybody. Listen here. The triune God's beauty is demonstrated best through variety, through various kinds, as you saw that word many times in chapter 1, through the various kinds that he directly created by the very word of his mouth, the incarnate Son of God. God loves variety. The beauty of the Milky Way, green foliage neighboring a deep, piercing blue sky, the varying skin tones of the people of the world, God loves it that way. Loves it. He's enthralled with the way he made it. In fact, we have evidence for something called microevolution. This is genetic adaptations. Take, for instance, dogs. You can take two different breeds of dog together, put them together, and then you have a new breed of dog over time. We have evidence for that all the time, and I think God created it that way because he loves variety. <laughs> we have that, yet there is no proof whatsoever that dogs have ever been something other than dogs. You'd be hard-pressed to find that. And as Forrest Gump says, that's all I've got to say about that. In conclusion, we believe that God created the heavens and the earth as an overflow of his beauty, love, and glory. All the variety, all the beauty of this world came into existence from the mind of God alone, unrivaled. So on the seventh day, the seventh day, God rested. It was a time of delight and enjoyment and rest and peace. The work was finished. And so, God rested. This reminds me of another time God declares that the work was done. That he rested from all his work. Upon the cross, the eternal son, Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, sent from the Father, gave up his life to finish the work of redeeming the creation he created. This is the work of buying us back from the power of sin and death. As he hung on the cross 
in our place, he decried, he cried out and declared three words. He said what? It is finished. His work was done. And when he rose again, Hebrews 10:12 tells us that when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He took a break because the work of redemption was completed. He rested. The work was done. By faith in the Son of God, you can enter this peace, enter into the rest that Jesus offers. You can be seen as in Christ, which is the way the New Testament talks about Christians, us being in him, which is incredible when you think about the Trinity, the fact that we've been invited into the relationship of the triune God forever. What a gift. You're welcomed into his joy, into his love, to enjoy him forever, and that is, in fact, the chief end of mankind. This is all our hope and peace, and this is why God created all things.